Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I want to begin today by talking about the top 10 things that you'll never hear in a Baptist church. The top 10 things you'll never hear in a Baptist church. Now, there may be more. This is what I came up with, so, um, you know, and my creativity may be limited. Uh, Number one, pastor, that sermon was way too short. Do you think you could preach longer next week to make up? (laughs) I love it when the worship service goes past 12 o'clock. Some of these are going to hurt. Just be ready. Uh, Do you think we could have something other than fried chicken to eat at homecoming? Things you'll never hear. Okay, keep that in mind. Things you'll never hear. We've got too many volunteers for the church nursery. They're back there playing paper, rock, scissors to see who comes back in the worship service. I will say that the church I once served had an interim pastor before me, and he showed John Hagee videos on Sunday nights, and there were more people who wanted to volunteer in the children's ministry than they had ever had before. Uh, number five, you know, don't put a brass plaque on that with my, with my family's name on it, please. Number six, committees, there's no need to form any more committees. Number seven, he's not here. I really wish he was here so that this would sting more. Uh, I can't wait for the next time the student pastor fills in on a Sunday morning. You can tell him I said that, because I sure will. Um, uh, Number eight, things you'll never hear in in a Baptist church. Pastor, we know the air conditioner is broken, but we'll be at church anyway. Number nine. There is simply no more room left on the front row. You guys are going to have to move to the back. I'm going to save number 10 for later on in our sermon. Hopefully the sermon won't be too short for you. Um, And hopefully none of these hit a little too close to home for you this morning either. Today's our last day in the book of Exodus. And so, uh, so there's certain verses we, of course, didn't cover, uh, but, uh, but today will be our last day in the book of Exodus. I want to kind of give you a picture of where we're going between now and, and Christmas time, which is really just around the corner. Uh, we're going to be hitting a couple of the highlights of Moses' life from both Numbers and Deuteronomy over the course of the next several weeks. And, uh, and then we'll finish up just in time to begin our celebration of Advent and Christmas there on December 1st. Exodus has been a, a quite a journey for us from a preaching standpoint. It's brought us from baby Moses floating in the Nile River to this season of time there at Mount Sinai. And here we find Moses is in his 80s. He has seen God do remarkable things over the course of his life. And Moses has been instrumental in leading this group of slaves out of Egypt They've camped here at the, ba- at the base of Mount Sinai. They will ultimately spend about a year at Mount Sinai. They've received the covenant with the Lord, and they are almost ready to depart Mount Sinai and head for Canaan. But there's one piece of unfinished business that they need to attend to before they can leave. They have to build the tabernacle, that, that mobile temple tent that would serve as the center of their worship for generations to come. Now, now, the the tabernacle was a remarkable structure. It was completely portable. 
but it was substantial enough that it would reflect the, the holiness of God. It would be made of precious metals, and it was to reflect the, the finest craftsmanship. And God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle back in Exodus chapter 25 and those chapters following. And now it's time to begin putting it together. And once the tabernacle was built, Israel would begin its journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, where they would prepare to enter into the promised land. You know, it's easy for us as modern readers, if you've read through the Old Testament in the first nine months of the year, you know this, that it's easy to get lost in the details of these construction projects. The, the, the Old Testament records several construction projects with, with fairly significant detail. And whether it's the, simply the length of these descriptions or, or perhaps the measurements when you're starting to measure cubits and talents and, and all those sort of things, it can be difficult to even, even have a frame of reference for, for exactly what is being described. Our modern mind that's driven by visual cues, we'd much rather look at a set of blueprints than a written description of those blueprints. If you've ever been involved in building something or looking at plans, imagine trying to build whatever it is in a society that translates those written plans into verbal or written descriptions. Imagine looking at a, at a, at a CAD drawing, if you're in any of the, uh, the architectural or, or building fields. Imagine looking at that drawing and trying to understand that drawing from the perspective of someone who is, who's writing it out. And, and describing it. It's like looking at your property pla uh, plat on, at, the t at the tax office where they describe in words where the pins are, and you've got to try to figure out where the pins are on the basis of what they describe. So it's easy to get lost. So, so don't worry, I'm not going to go through a verse-by-verse -verse description of the building process here. Um, and I'm not going to do an exposition on the total construction of the tabernacle, even though there's some great points to be made in the minutia of the project. But I do want this morning to take just a few moments to consider three things about this building project. The materials, the manpower, and the motivation that we see at work in this project. The materials, the manpower, and the motivation. When you go back and read about the, the contents of the tabernacle, you talk, understand how much material went into building this, this mobile worship space, you may not recognize just how much stuff we're talking about. Just in the amount of gold that was used in the tabernacle, we're, we're told that over 29 talents were used to build the tabernacle. That's of gold. And I don't have any talents with me, but if you weigh in the neighborhood of 75 pounds, uh, if you're a younger person, then you equal about a talent. So I could set my, I could set my son up here on the stage, and he's a little more than a talent, but, but Matthew's a talent. And so going into the talent, going into the, uh, the building of this tabernacle, were just over 29 talents. So that's, that's a fair amount of gold that goes into this, this process. And you think about how much gold that translates into, well, that actually is worth somewhere around $52 million just in gold. That's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, 
That's a lot of value that went into this. You can go do the math on silver and other metals if you like. But that's how much, that's how much there is just in gold that was there. Now, where in the world did Israel find that much gold sitting around Mount Sinai? Well, the answer is simple. Well, they brought it with them. They brought it with them. If you recall back on the night of the Exodus, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians, and as they left, they, they collected all of, this, all of this, this material, all of this wealth that they collected on the way out there in Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. Now, Israel at that time may have thought, man, we are striking it rich on our way out of Egypt. We are, we are gonna be, we're going to be wealthy coming out of Egypt. But it becomes clear at Mount Sinai that God had other plans for all those materials that they were collecting. You see, God had put the materials for the tabernacle into the hands of his people from the pockets of his people's oppressors. Now, if that's not irony, I don't know what is. The, the materials that were used to build this structure were Egyptian materials that were, were turned over to them on the way out. Here, take our stuff, take our goods, take our silver, take our gold, take our bronze, take these raw materials, and Israel makes out like bandits, but God had a plan for all of those raw materials. You know, it reminds us of a very important point. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need for anything. God's not looking at our church thinking, man, I could sure use this or I could sure use that. God doesn't need for anything. Sometimes we approach God with a, with a self-centered view where we feel like that, that God needs us or God needs our materials. We approach giving and our generosity like, like God needs it. As if we are somehow doing God a favor when we contribute our offerings. But understand this, God has all the resources in the universe at his disposal. If he could take the gold and silver from the Egyptians and put it in the pockets of his people, and then his people can take all those materials into the wilderness and they can turn all those materials into this incredible mobile worship structure, God doesn't need for anything. If he can take Egyptian gold and turn it into a worship center for himself, then God isn't worried about any notion of scarcity. God isn't worried about doing without. You know, it's an interesting tension that exists in the Christian world when we think about this. On one hand, we affirm that God doesn't need anything that we have. On the other hand, we find ourselves as the church wrestling with budgets and buildings and having money for missions and ministry. It raises a question. If God has unlimited resources, then why doesn't the church? If God has unlimited resources, then why, why do we have budgets? Why do we sometimes fail to meet those budgets? Well, hang on to that question for just a bit. Hopefully we'll come up with an answer by the end. So we talk about the materials. Let's talk about the manpower. Let's talk about the manpower. Look at Exodus chapter 35, beginning in verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its coverings, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils. And the bread of the presence. 
the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, and their cords, and the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Let me tell you, Moses couldn't send this list with somebody to Walmart and pick it up. Did they deliver? Right? What a list! What a list! So we have all these materials that are being collected as Moses tells them to contribute. But here we have the manpower that goes into putting this thing together. Well, where'd they get it? Where'd they get all the manpower? Did they go out and hire metal workers and embroiderers and seamstresses? Were some of the more technical jobs just subcontracted out? You know, hire, hire one, of the, one of the local people to do that job. Well, not at all. You see, we're told that under the direction of two men, back in Exodus chapter 31, we're introduced to them. Their names are Aholiab and Bezalel. That under the direction of these two men, the manpower from built, for building the tabernacle came from the, from the people, came from the community. We're told that Aholiab and Bezalel, back in Exodus 31, were filled with the Spirit that empowered them to lead this project. So these two men took all of the Israelites who had any knowledge of the disciplines needed for building the tabernacle and they empowered them and they put them to work. Two things come to mind. First, the Holy Spirit was active in gifting people for service. The Holy Spirit empowered Bezalel and Aholiab for their job, for leading, for, for leading this project. But it, they couldn't do it on their own. I mean, good gracious, the list in and of itself is overwhelming. And so the Holy Spirit empowered them, but secondly, the people had to step up to make it a possibility. You know, when we stop and think about it, really any kind of undertaking that we engage in, there's always two kinds of resources that are needed. There are the physical resources, which Moses collects here from the people, and then there are the human resources, you can have all the physical resources in the world. But if you lack those human resources, then you can't accomplish very much. Likewise, you can have all the willing workers in the world and lack those physical resources, and it's very difficult to keep all those people busy with work. Try to run a factory and have unlimited people but no raw materials to work with. You won't have a very successful factory. Or try to run a factory where you have unlimited raw materials and no employees. Good luck making any money. That's true for anything. When you consider the church, the thing is still the same. It's, the tr it's still the truth. The process is the same. And it's, sa it's the same for what happened with the Holy Abba, Bezalel, and the people. This is incredible. The same Holy Spirit that specifically gifted Aholiab and Bezalel gifts each and every single believer with some means of serving. The New Testament affirms this. If you're a believer, then you are gifted. You are part of the manpower that God wants to deploy in the building of his kingdom. Does he need you? No. But does he want you? 
Absolutely. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He wants to put us to work. He wants to give us a job. He wants us to, to make much of him. Again, he doesn't need me. He need any of us. But in his grace, he wants to put people like us, vessels like us, to work to be part of something significant. I think sometimes we miss this when our gifting sends us to places that we perceive to be insignificant in their role. Think for a moment about the seamstress in the erection of the tabernacle here. Think about that seamstress who was given a very specific job by Bezalel. He gave her a, a panel, a curtain panel, a roll of thread or yarn and a needle, and he looks at her and he says, I want you to take this curtain panel and I want you to embroider all over this curtain panel. I want you to cover this curtain panel with, with, with symbols and, and images of cherubim and, and angels. Her job, simply put, take that needle and that yarn and embroider this panel of curtain. And so the seamstress takes her time spending the next few months. I can't imagine how long it takes to embroider when you don't have one of those fancy machines. I mean, I watch how those machines work. It's pretty impressive, but can you imagine having to do that by hand? And so he gives the seamstress the job. Take the panel of curtain, the yarn, the needle, and embroider it from top to bottom, side to side. And so for days and weeks, she toils embroidering angels all over that material. Day in, day out, she toils over her curtain, poking her fingers with the needle as she wearies in the, in the evening of all of her work, never really seeing the big picture of what she was doing. But then came the day that that seamstress presented her curtain to her supervisor, and he takes the curtain and he hangs it in its frame, alongside of the dozens of other curtains that it took to make the tabernacle. And suddenly that woman realizes, as she has given of her time and her effort and her blood and her sweat in toiling over this curtain panel, that that insignificant curtain panel was actually a key part of a monumental project that she didn't even understand the full extent of. It's interesting, the church is full of jobs just like that. You work in the church nursery, and you change diapers week in and week out. You teach that third grade Sunday school class, and those kids never show up ready. They're distracted. They're, they're worried about anything else. They, their parents sent them to class with their electronic devices, and so you're, you know you're going you're gonna to be thankful if you could just survive the hour. Or you join that mission trip at the last minute, and you're not really even sure why God sent you. One day, your work is going to hang, hang alongside of the work of so many others who, like you, have toiled and sweat and shed tears. Some have even shed blood. And while you're busy in the church nursery or in that Sunday school class, you may not realize it, but one day your curtain's going to hang alongside of all those other curtains 
and you're going to realize that God had you working as part of something huge, something monumental, something that you missed because you were so focused on the task. And you're going to realize that you were just a small piece of a huge puzzle that God was putting together. I think about when I gave my life to the Lord, I walked to the front of an altar in a Baptist church just like this, and, and a guy that I didn't know at the time opened his Bible and shared with me how I could become a Christian. It was an ordinary worship service, nothing extraordinary. And that fellow may not have realized he was just doing his job. But at the end of that the end of his life, all those works that he didn't know amounted to much are going to hang alongside of a, of a greater picture of what God was doing. And that's true for, for any job that we do. We, we think that jobs can be insignificant, but the fact of the matter is that some of the most insignificant jobs can amount to some of the most significant opportunities in the kingdom of God. That's the manpower at work in the tabernacle. Thirdly, I want to look at the motivation. Look over in chapter 36. Look at verses 2, beginning in verse 2. Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. And they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. That's number 10 of the things you'll never hear in a Baptist church. Don't give any more. You've given too much. This is one of the most incredible texts about the power of generosity in the Bible. In this moment, these Israelites were incredibly motivated by this project, and they gave generously to it. They gave so much that it was more than enough to finish the tabernacle, and then some. They were looking for places to stick gold. Hey, hang some right there. Put some in that curtain. It'll fit, right? They were finding stuff somewhere to put all this stuff. And we're told that they were free will gifts. What this means is they were gifts not given out of some obligation, but out of the kindness and overflow of the hearts of the people. Uh, imagine driving by church on a Monday morning and seeing this. <laughs> That's the worst job of Photoshop I think I've ever seen. Imagine seeing an armored truck parked out in the parking lot at church on a Monday morning. You're curious, so you pull in and you stop and you walk in and Connie, our wonderful administrative assistant, greets you with a smile and you say, what is this armored truck doing out there? And she says, well, they're here to collect yesterday's offering. It was more than any of us were comfortable taking to the bank. <laughs> That's what's happening here in Exodus chapter 36. They got more stuff than they know what to do with. And not the junk stuff. 
Because sometimes we think this way. You know, well, I'm tired of this thing in my house. The church can use it, right? I don't like it anymore, so let me give it to the church because they, they can not like it. But I can get a tax deduction for not liking it, right? That's not what's happening here. They're not giving the junk stuff. They're giving their finest gold, their finest silver. They're giving the good stuff. And Moses said, y'all got to stop giving this stuff. You've given too much. We've, we've met God's expectations and more. Isn't it interesting that we laugh because I don't know there's many churches that have armored cars meet them on Monday morning. You know, ultimately, when we deal with a lack of materials and a lack of manpower, it stems from a lack of motivation. A lack of materials and a lack of manpower comes from a lack of motivation. In other words, these are, these are heart issues. We, we sweat about how we get people involved and how we uh, meet budgets and things like that, but really the reason those problems even exist is because of heart issues. Because we affirm this, God doesn't need our materials and God doesn't need our manpower. But what God does do is he gives us an opportunity to connect with him in his big plan. He gives us the opportunity to be part of what he's doing through our free will offering, through our, our serving, through engaging him in what he's doing. All we may be doing is embroidering a curtain. But that curtain's there for his glory and for his good and because he called them to it. And it was just a simple part of a much bigger, broader plan. And I would challenge you that I could walk around every Sunday school classroom, every children's area, everything on this campus that requires someone's hand to touch it. And I could say that that job may seem insignificant in the moment, but it is essential in the master's plan. It may only amount to that little tiny piece of a jigsaw puzzle but if you've ever put a jigsaw puzzle together and you come up a couple of pieces short, you know how frustrating that is. God wants to put our materials and our manpower to work. He wants us to give the opportunity to connect with him. He wants to give us the chance to line our hearts up with his. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians that God loves a, a cheerful giver. I heard a preacher say one time, we shouldn't, or we should give, not until it hurts, but we should give until it feels good. The Israelites would face their share of struggles in the coming years. But at this moment, in this place, their hearts were right with the Lord. And we see it in their generous contribution of materials to the work of God and their generous contribution of their manpower to the work of God. And as a result of their generosity in both their time and their treasures, God did something incredible in their midst through the tabernacle. These Israelites were a part of accomplishing something that was absolutely stunning. And no single individual Israelite knew the full extent of what they were doing. But they were faithful with their part. And God did something as a whole. 
You know, if you were to be having heart problems today, doctors would stick you on a treadmill, have you run for a little bit, and check your, check your heartbeat and your heart rhythm. They might stick some probes on you and check the electrical signals across your heart to see how your heart's performing. And based on the results of those tests, they would come up with some diagnoses or some further tests and things like that. It's not terribly complicated tests. They simple, simple tests, but have monumental outcomes, those tests can. And I think what we see here is a, is a simple heart check. I wonder this morning, how's your heart? And we don't have a machine we can hook you up to to check your spiritual heart. It'd be great if we did, right? Have a, have a treadmill when you come in the door. All right, hop on the treadmill. Let's see how you're doing this morning. And say, uh, we've, got, we've got somebody whose heart's a little irregular here. Let's, let's fix that. Yeah, that'd be great, but we don't. But God has given us some things where we can check our hearts to see how our hearts are doing. Some simple tests. And here's two tests that God has given us today regarding materials, regarding manpower. And it simply requires us to ask two simple questions. One, what are you doing with those physical resources that God has, has given you? What are you doing with them? Are you stewarding them to his glory? And secondly, what are you doing with your human resources? Saying, Pastor, I don't have any human resources. And I would say, you are a human resource. What are you doing with your human resource. Would you join me in prayer, please? Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.